So, as Barb alluded to in the introduction to the service, The problem we had last week in writing a sermon uh, is that we didn't understand the parable. The problem we have this week in writing a sermon is that we do understand the parable and we don't like it. If you pay any attention at all to Jesus' teachings, you know that he was extremely consistent, tiresomely consistent, Mary Ludi says about the fact that God commands us to care for those in need, period. Not just if you're fabulously wealthy, but anyone to care for those in need that they know. It's one of the main themes of all of scripture and this parable is no exception. And so yes, that's part of the meaning of this parable. And we want to explore some of the subtleties of it to give us some clues about how it is that we're to live this out in our lives. And so let's start with Lazarus. All we know about Lazarus is his name and that he's poor and hungry and covered with sores. Why is he poor? Is he just down on his luck? Is he just a bum? Jesus doesn't tell us. It's like Jesus doesn't care. Lazarus is poor and that is enough. That's all that's important here. The one additional thing about Lazarus that we're told is that he hung out at the rich man's gate. True. And that introduces our next character, the rich man. And we don't know that much about him either, except that he's really rich, which you expect from the title. And here's an interesting thing. He's not given a name. That is so scandalous to us modern Westerners that we've given him a name. It was even in the wonderful hymn, the the boppiest hymn about burning in hell I've ever heard. It was amazing. Uh, What's the name we gave him? Dives. Dives. Anyone know what that even means in Latin? So We don't know. We're not going to give him a name because Jesus didn't give him a name. I'm not going to call call him Dives. He's the rich man. We're going to call him the rich man. We know he lives extremely well and that he lives, he ignores Lazarus completely. And that's one of the dangers that Jesus brings up here is that when you have enough or more than enough to eat and drink and wear, it's awfully easy to start to think of yourself as deserving that or better or different from those who don't have enough. And you can ignore them. And pretty soon, they're invisible to you and you're not seeing them at all. So for anyone who pays any attention to Jesus' teachings at all, it's no surprise that when this rich man and Lazarus die, the rich man ends up in Hades and Lazarus ends up in the bosom of Abraham or the veil of Abraham, V-A-L-E, is in Valley of Abraham. It's clearly a surprise to the rich man, though. Yes. And somehow, even in the midst of his fiery torment, he doesn't have even a glimmer of remorse. He still tries to order Lazarus and even Father Abraham around 
as though they're his servants. The language is amazing. Yo, Father Abraham, send Lazarus, my water boy, to come down here and cool my tongue. He doesn't even say please. Doesn't even say please. For I am in agony. I am in agony. Uh, And when that doesn't work, he still does not have a word of apology to Lazarus, but instead asks Abraham to bend some unspoken or unwritten cosmological rules. Send someone back from the dead to warn the rich man's brother so that they don't fall into the same trap he has. Surely something can be done. I'm the unnamed rich guy. (laughs) Can't something extra be done? Can't the rules be bent? Can't you get a, a special master to read the rules? To save such a wonderful and special person as myself who has had such abundance from God, I must be popular. Abraham says, no, no. If they don't listen to the scriptures, the words of Moses and the prophets, they're not going to listen to someone who comes back from the dead. If they can't figure out that God wants them to care for the poor, even someone coming back from the dead, especially when it's someone they've been stepping over for years and years to come to your house, comes back from the dead, it's not going to help. Abraham basically says those brothers are going to have to spend for themselves, or rather, those brothers are going to have to get themselves out of the center of their lives and start listening instead to something beyond themselves, to the words of Moses, the words of Scripture. If you watch a lot of movies, especially the tearjerker ones, we tend to think that when you, when you begin to face the stark reality of terminal illness and death, that it, it brings a clarity of vision. You suddenly see life and the way you've lived life and with new eyes, a new way of thinking about ourself and our relationship with others. Um, it happens in the movies. It happens in real life. And it happens in real life. Just not all the time. <laughs> Fairly rarely. Uh, after a third of a century of pastoring and uh, helping families deal with dysfunction in the midst of terminal illness and dying, uh, I have found that in general, and there are wonderful exceptions, but in general, people who live as narcissists selfish and non-empathetic toward friends and families and strangers, they tend to become people who die as narcissists, as selfish and non-empathetic, even to friends and family. As, as we were going over the, the parable this week, I, I, I got brought back to an experience I had a bunch of years ago counseling with a woman who was taking care of her mother, who had been living with her in hospice uh, for months. And the daughter was a really lovely person and came to me to ask, how, how do I broach a difficult subject with my mom? I want to forgive her for the way the, the physical and, and more seriously uh, psychic Uh, abuse we suffered at the hands of my mother for a lot of years. I want to forgive her, but I need 
to talk to her about it. I need to bring the subject up. How do I do that? And we, we talked about that for a while, and she went to go and have this difficult conversation with her mom. And the daughter shared her and her brother's experience. And she said her mother stiffened up and said, those things never happened. You're making them up to hurt me. The woman and her brothers and their mom never reconciled. And it made their grieving after her death even harder. So often the blinders that we wear in life to protect our egos, to protect our places of privilege maybe, blinders around money, around our race and gender and sexuality, they don't magically fall away when we get a terminal diagnosis. Even for family, even for those that we love, and if we take what the parable says seriously, or if for those of you who've read C.S. Lewis's extended parable, The Great Divorce, those blinders may not fall off even after we die. And then Abraham says this interesting thing to the rich man. Besides all this, talking about the brothers, between you and us, a great chasm has been fixed. And I have to say that I always thought that it, that was a chasm that God made between paradise and Hades. But the more I think about it, the more I realize that that doesn't make any sense. God is not about fixing chasms. God is about reconciliation. So we might suggest... No, we are suggesting. We are suggesting. <laughs> I'm much more ambassadorial than Barbie is. We suggest that the chasm fixed between the rich man and Lazarus was the one created by the rich man himself. He dug the chasm, shovelful by shovelful, each time he walked by, stepped over, and ignored Lazarus. Each time he rendered Lazarus invisible, an invisible object, not a subject, not a beloved child of Abraham. Each time he did that, he dug one more shovelful, creating the chasm between Lazarus and the rich man. Now, during his lifetime, the rich man was quite content to have this chasm, this psychic chasm between them to keep his distance from Lazarus's suffering. He needed that psychic distance so he could protect himself from someone else who hurt. And so after a lifetime of digging, it's no surprise really that that chasm is deep and broad indeed and that it persists even into death. I think what's surprising about the story is that even after he dies, he keeps digging it. Mm. Right? He sees Lazarus still simply as a tool to ease his own pain or to send to his brothers so that they don't so that they might repent of their ways. Old habits die hard, and sometimes they don't die at all. That chasm was indeed fixed, not by God, but by the rich man. He had dug it all through his life. Carlisle Marmy wrote, 
after Jesus, ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you flinch before it makes you free. In this parable, this is the place where I start flinching. Because I build chasms too. I dig chasms too, shovelful by shovelful, one at a time. Some of those chasms we inherit where we live, where we go to school, where we shop, whom we hang out with. These things we don't have control over. Our race, our gender, our sexual orientation, our political affiliations, well, we choose those. But that those are so much a part of our lives that we don't even see them any more than the rich man saw Lazarus at his doorstep. And if we're honest with ourselves, there are a fair number of chasms in our lives. And if I'm honest with myself, I've sometimes dug them very intentionally, particularly when I've been hurt by someone, right? This parable makes me wonder what I do about that. How do I fill those chasms in? How do I start to notice the people who normally are invisible to me? And how do I become uncomfortable with the space that I've made to keep me comfortable? How do I reach out across those chasms? I know that since we've been here at Harvard Epworth, we've both appreciated being part of the the feeding ministries that this church does, the outdoor church and the Friday Cafe, um, for all kinds of reasons, partly because we're feeding folk who are hungry. It's not a solution to the problem of hunger. It also meets a need that very much is real in our area. But there are some ways in which outdoor church and Friday Cafe provide that food that I think are particularly important. First of all, it's good food. (laughs) Those are good sandwiches and homemade lasagnas and homemade cookies and all of those other things that we're allowed to give, that we're able to give out to people. And even more important, in both those ministries, the volunteers learn and know the names of the people who are receiving that food and share their own names as well and have a conversation with them in the process of the exchange that happens. One of the things I love is, Lane, I'm going to embarrass you here, but it, when we're handing out sandwiches, it, Lane's like, let's go see how Alistair's doing. We, we have to catch up. We haven't seen him in a couple of weeks. Hope everything's okay. It's human to human right? when we're out there. And Friday Cafe has been designed not for people to give food to other people, but for folks to eat together. And COVID threw a huge wrench into that, but just this week, I think, anyway, at least there were plans on Friday to start to to eat together again around tables. And I know as I've spoken to both the folks receiving food and to the volunteers over the last (laughs) months, folks have said how much they've missed that opportunity to be together, to start to create community. And it feels to me that whenever someone in need, when their need is met and they're greeted by name, and a connection gets made between them and the folks who are helping them out, that's one of the ways those chasms get filled in just a little bit. And it's not just that we 
do good and thus start filling in the chasm a bit. But the chasm gets filled when we get blessed by the experiences of those others. When we take the time and the energy to learn the life experiences of those outside our usual lives, when we dig into the history, even when, or especially when, that history is, is hard to hear, uh, when we learn about the, the native people who lived on this land before it was taken by white folk, when we face the harsh reality that, that Harvard University benefited directly from the slave trade, and that some of the, the names we have on our streets and on our beautiful buildings around here are names of people who enslaved other human beings or who benefited from the industries they owned that bought and sold other human beings. Whenever we take another's experience, even a difficult one, a horrendous one, and take it into our hearts until it starts to change our perspective, the chasm starts to get filled in. When we start to put someone else's experience at the center of our decision-making, we fill in the chasm a bit, bit by bit, shovelful by shovelful. It's slow, just the same way it was originally dug out. Filling it in takes time and effort. I think the real tragedy of this parable is not the rich man's fate after his death, but rather the description of how he lived his life. Is that in life he rendered invisible a person who could have made the rich man's life so much richer in relationship rather than stuff. The rich man's life would have been richer and more blessed by knowing Lazarus. I, I've recognized this time and time and time again in my own straight white middle class world, straight white male middle class world, that my life is made infinitely richer by being in life-giving relationships with people who would have scared me when I was younger and the way I was growing up. People who don't look like me or act like me or believe like me. People who have blessed me with new perspectives on life, who have challenged my preconceived notions, who have shown me other ways to be human, different ways to love, to believe, to worship, to be a child of God. I've been blessed by that. I don't know how much I've blessed them, but I've been blessed. And that's helped me begin to fill in the chasms that I've dug or which were dug before me. So is it enough? These practices that we've described here and others that I'm sure you all can uh, imagine and that you practice in your own lives. Is that enough to fill in the chasms of our lives? 
even if those chasms aren't created by us directly? I don't know. Probably not, to be honest. And this parable is not about us filling in our chasms so that we deserve God's love. This parable is about God's grace, which reaches out to us again and again and asks us to reach back in whatever ways that we can. This parable is about how God's kingdom is made up of all people, how God has surrounded us with brothers and sisters and siblings in Abraham and in Jesus, people all around us who make our lives infinitely richer and whose lives we can enrich as well. And when we tune folks out, when we settle for a smaller life, when we would just as soon feel safe or superior than feel loving, that's when God's good news sweeps in. And whatever chasms we've dug, God is able to reach across those. Blessing upon blessing is what God has created for us. Reconciliation is what God is all about. The question to us is, are we willing? Amen. Our next hymn is When the Church of Jesus, and it's number 592 in our red hymnals.